0: Luke chapter 23, verse 46 is our text. And the message is entitled, Coming Home. The prophetic hour that our Lord Jesus had mentioned often in the Gospel of John has been going on for nearly 34 hours. The hour. Though he knew from all eternity about it, there came a time when Jesus took on a human body... And began to walk. On his journey towards the cross. His ministry of three and a half years. Being over now. And the very hour is at hand here. He went through the amazing agony. As you know in the garden of Gethsemane. Physically, emotionally. And spiritually. By the time Jesus. Had been crucified. At nine in the morning. He had been up all the day before all that night about 28 hours plus 6 on the cross he had been taken to annas and beaten john 18:13 he had been taken to caiaphas and also beaten plus interrogated on both of those religious trials in mark 14:65 he had been taken to pilate sent to herod And then back to Pilate. He was questioned three times. Condemned to die by crucifixion. And then scourged with the cat of nine tails. Leather thongs extending. Bone, metal, glass at the end. Thirteen lashes on the right, thirteen lashes on the left, thirteen across the shoulders. The metal, the glass, the bone would insert deep and tear flesh, sinew, muscle. Lungs would be exposed. Few people would survive that lashing. The first three hours from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., the wrath of man had been hurled at Jesus. And he uttered his first three sayings, focusing on others, quite different from any other human being. He prayed that God would forgive his enemies in the first saying in Luke 23, 34, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He assured the thief on the cross that He would be with him in paradise that very day. In the second saying in Luke 23, 43. Today. You will be with me in paradise. He entrusted the care of his mother to John. In the third saying. In John 19, 25 through 27. Woman, behold your son. Behold your mother. The last three hours, Jesus utter his last four sayings, focusing on himself as the wrath of God was poured out on him. He cried out in agony over the separation of the fellowship between himself and the Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In Matthew 27, 46. He expressed his horrible thirst, both Physically and spiritually, in John 1928, I thirst, and he proclaimed victory over soul. It is finished in John 19:29 and 30. In this last saying, the seventh saying, Jesus expressed his joyful dismissal of his spirit to the Father. Luke twenty three forty six. Listen. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. The seventh saying of Jesus from the cross regards his death, which is characterized by three things. First, the loving relation. One word Father second the trusting expression into your hands thirdly the willing submission i commend my spirit the loving relationship is the foundational one father jesus was constantly aware that he was speaking to his father and not hallucinating like many people profess He was not out of control when he expressed, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But declared the very same due to the fact that he had been separated from the Father for the first time from all eternity in a way that you and I have no understanding or comprehension to its full end or ever will on this side of heaven. As he became sin for us, because God is holy, he cannot look upon sin. He must judge sin. this is made very clear in matthew twenty seven forty six He was not drugged with the wine that was customarily given to crucified individuals to relieve some of the pain, though it was very little that it relieved. Jesus refused this in mark fifteen twenty three so in effect. He took the brunt of all the pain that goes along with crucifixion, which is one of the cruelest way and the most horrible way to die. Persians, the Carthaginians, and then the Romans perfected it. He was very aware throughout his time on the cross and at the point of his mission that it had been accomplished. Having said, it is finished. Which was the assessment of the accomplished goal in John 19.30. What God purpose he accomplished. It wasn't just a religious monument or a religious act. Notice Jesus was crying out prophetically to his father. He cried with a loud voice to his father. The quote is from Psalm 31.5, which expresses confidence in God's deliverance. But the word Father is substituted by Jesus for the phrase, the Lord Yahweh Elohim of truth. Because Jesus was interpreting and saying, this was the prophetic prophecy of me as I'm on the cross. He's the author of his word. (laughs) The word loud means great and it's used of intensity in its degrees with great effort of the affections and emotions of the mind. Of natural events powerfully affecting the senses. In this case, declaring the prophetic accomplishment. Kind of a satisfaction, if you will, if you've ever worked hard towards a goal. And you've gone one objective after the other. And when you finally cross that line, it's sort of a relief to an extent. This is the idea. The word is the same one Jesus used calling Lazarus out from the grave in John eleven forty three 43 with a loud voice. Notice this day and time had been foretold from before the fall of Adam and Eve. God knew Adam and Eve would fail. He gave them the prophecy of the virgin birth, the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. There would be a temporal wound to the heel of Jesus, the cross, but temporal. There would be a a crushing of the authority of Satan, his head, destruction. God gave them a free will to exercise in obedience or disobedience in the garden. In order to demonstrate their love for God. In Genesis two sixteen and 17. Because God never forces you to do anything. He never forces you to go to heaven. And he certainly never forces you to go to hell. So if you don't know Jesus Christ tonight. God is here to knock on the door of your heart. To let you know how much he loves you. And that he died for you. And that you're headed for hell. But you don't have to go there. You can call on his name and be saved. This is the love of God that we don't understand. He's not like us. There was no other person involved in the work of salvation but the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit at the cross. The Trinity is a mystery unknown to man, it can't be completely understand to its full end either, yet it's true. In Deuteronomy 6.4 it says, the Lord our God is one. The word is a kad, in the Hebrew it means a compound unity of one. There's another word, Yahid, for absolute one. It's a compound unity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. When you think of the Trinity, do not add, multiply. One times, one times, one is one. If you add, you come up with three gods. That's unbiblical. The Trinity refers to one God in three persons, yet all have the attributes of God. They're all all knowing, all present, all powerful. The Father Is the source, the Son is the channel, the Holy Spirit is the agent in salvation, working in harmony as one to bring us to Christ. Notice Jesus was communing with his Father. This relationship had always existed from all eternity, as I said. God is eternal and has always existed. People always say, well, who created God? Well, nobody. The Bible says. If you believe Genesis 1, then you have no problem with the world. You understand it perfectly. You understand why there's evil. You understand why people do the things they do. You can understand the creation that has fallen. But if you reject the record of God in Genesis 1 and 2, then you have to be clever to invent a system to explain Our world as it is. And then now you've got a bigger problem. You've got to explain where evil comes from. And if you believe that man is good. Where's the evidence coming from when all history of man says man is bad news. So if you accept the record of God, the world makes perfect sense. God had conversations with the Trinity since the beginning of time, and we've known it. In Genesis 1, he says, let us make man in our image, a plural pronoun. God wasn't speaking to the horny toads and lizards. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, our image. We're creating the image and likeness of God. You are technically a spirit being, the real you, the real me. He's giving you this body to communicate as we'll see as we move on. But the real you is spirit. When you die, your body will go to the ground. Your spirit's going to go to heaven or to hell. Hell is so real that Jesus spoke more about hell than he did about heaven. He gave severe warnings. The relationship was altered at the incarnation of the Son. Eternal fellowship. Fellowship. Yet it was altered. The fellowship that existed from the beginning is given to us in John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. And then in verse 14, the Word became flesh, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Something changed there. Something happened. Jesus left His abode and came to earth in the Incarnation. The Son, who was God, took on flesh at a set day. Right on time, Galatians 4.4 4 says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth, made of a woman, under the law. He sent forth His Son. God has never been tardy for anything. Now, if He came the first time, fulfilling over 300 prophecies, many of them as He's on the cross, what would give you any inclination to think that He's not going to fulfill the rest? And right on time. People mock the second coming of Christ. Oh, you guys have been saying that since my grandma's day. Well, be patient. He's coming. He's not tardy. He never has been. The relationship was interrupted as he became sin for the world on the cross. You remember John the Baptist told his disciples, as they told him, that more people were going to Jesus. And he said that, he was sent to send them to Jesus. He said, behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sins of the world in John 1, 29. Every hero that heard that understood and they got this vision in their mind. A person bringing a little goat or sheep, whatever the requirement for their sacrifice, tying them to a pole, laying hands on the head, taking a knife, cutting its throat, that animal hitting the ground. And that person looking down and knowing that that animal was innocent, And he died in their place. God schooled the Jews for 2,000 years, and they missed their Messiah. Jesus was now in fellowship again with the Father. As the wrath was poured out, he was separated from the Father. Now the wrath's over, he's in fellowship with God again, the Father. But he's still here on earth. The atonement was accomplished at the cross, not in Hades, as so many teach today in the positive confession movement. That's blasphemous. If you believe Jesus went down to Hades to finish the atonement and the payment made to Satan, that's blasphemous. The fall was disobedience against the Father in the garden, the payment was made to the Father. And it was finished at the cross. That's another gospel. It's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that God made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Wow. Who, who do you think got the best deal on that? <laughs> Amazing. The relationship was now restored since the Father's wrath had already been poured out on the Son and atonement had been made. Jesus fulfilled the propitious requirement to satisfy God's wrath for the entire world. 1 John 2, 2 says, and he is the propitiation for our sins, the believer, and not only our sins, but the whole world. You see, if Jesus was a propitiation for the whole world, that means the whole world has a potential to be saved. You cannot believe in the chosen frozen mentality. That God only elected and chose the few to be saved. And damn the rest. You'll never find it in the Bible. Jesus was now in fellowship with the Father. There was darkness, as you know, from 12 noon till 3 p.m., yet it was full moon. It couldn't have been an eclipse. You can't explain it naturally. The veil was rent in the temple. By the way, it was from the top to the bottom, and men would have ripped it. It would have been from the bottom to the top. Evidence that the new and living way had been made into heaven. Hebrews ten twenty. The relationship was also to cry, and the cry of oneness. Jesus said, "I and the Father are one." In John ten thirty. Jesus at Gethsemane said, "Not my will, but your will be done." Matthew twenty six thirty nine. And the Father declared that He speaks through His dear Son in these last days. In Hebrews one. One and two. God who at different times. and In diverse manners. Spoken times past. Through the prophets. Has in these last days. Spoken unto us. Through his son Jesus Christ. Nobody else. Allah cannot save you. Krishna cannot save you. Peter cannot save you. The Pope cannot save you. You certainly cannot save yourself. Only Jesus Christ. God is very narrow-minded. God is not politically correct. God is not into diversity. Hell is. Not heaven. The loving relationship is revealed by the word Father. Notice secondly comes the trusting expression into your hands. Jesus was declaring his complete confidence in the Father, listen, at death. The death of Jesus was real. He actually died just as he actually hungered, thirsted, tired, slept, bled. Just according to the gospel. Don't believe that he fainted according to the Passover plot, which is a complete lie. The death of Jesus was confirmed by the soldiers who examined the other two malefactors in John 19.33. The death of Jesus caused Pilate to marvel that he had already died in Mark 15.44. The death of Jesus is attested in all four Gospels. In fact, his death is crucial. Because the death was the payment. The resurrection is the receipt of guarantee that the payment was accepted, paid in full. The death of Jesus was the most unnatural of all things, said G. Campbell Morgan, and I quote him here. The death of Jesus was unnatural. That is to say, it was out of the true order of human life according to the economy of God. Death is the outcome of sin. Jesus was sinless. You remember being small and your dad or your mom maybe gave you a spanking when you really didn't deserve it. They were mistaken. But you know you deserved it anyway because you escape other times when you did deserve it. <laughs> because you're bad. Our inclination is towards darkness. Our inclination is to lie. Our inclination is to blame somebody else. Jesus had no sin. The greatest injustice that ever happened on this earth. The body of Jesus was petitioned by Joseph of as you know, and he buried him in a borrowed tomb in Luke twenty-three fifty-three. He only needed it for three days. No big deal. That's all. The confidence of Jesus in the Father at death was only the result of his daily confidence throughout his life and ministry, though. My confidence at death, as the Lord tarries, will be the sole result and product of the process of daily fellowship with God. The problem is too many people want to live like the devil and die like a saint. Listen to me carefully. You will die just like you live. You must walk with God daily. You'll do well at death. Guaranteed. when he was 12 years old, you know that he told Mary and Joseph as he stayed behind in the temple, questioning the doctors, did you not know that I must be about my father's business? Now, I just flicked the channel the other day for O'Reilly's killing Jesus. I only saw a minute and I turned it off. Because Jesus presented himself as being confused. Why am I here? I don't know. Am I, I have a mission. Now hear me. Well, God will use anything to save people and he will. But for us to not point out the unscriptural aspects of movies that are made is wrong. The number one problem in America, ladies and gentlemen, is the pulpits of America. There needs to be a repentance and a revival in the pastors and the denominations that have sold themselves out to ecumenicalism and abandoned the scriptures. We don't want to make judgments. We don't want to offend people. Listen to me. Some of us need to be offended. Some of us need to be told we're absolutely wrong. When Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, he used the word Father 16 times, averaging 5.3 times each chapter. Five, six, and seven, three chapters. When he spoke to his disciples the last night about his leaving and going to the Father, Jesus mentioned the Father 54 times, averaging 13.5 times each chapter of John, 14 15, 16, and 17. Do you think Jesus loved the Father and was looking forward to be with the Father again? You ever been away from your wife, your husband, your children for a while? And they're waiting for you at the airport or a train station or something? Great reunions, right? This was the Lord. He knew he was going home. Jesus was declaring his complete confidence in the Father to raise him from the dead. Death is not the end of life, as you know, as we know it. The philosophy of the here and now and nothing thereafter is a convenient lie for those who believe they will not have to give an account to a creator. Right now, it sounds good but not thereafter. Oh, what men and women would give in hell right now to sit in your place to hear the gospel one more time. What they would give. The philosophy is rejected by the scriptures that the lie against God, Hebrews nine twenty seven is appointed unto man to die once and then the judgment, ladies and gentlemen. This is not a Christian um, strategy to intimidate or to f- put fear in people. It's a warning of love that people would escape eternal damnation. Paul told the Athenians on Mars Hill, Truly these times of ignorance God overlooked. But now commands all men everywhere to repent because He has appointed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom He has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising Him from the dead. When's the last time somebody told you they raised somebody from the dead? You're lucky if you can get some people out of bed. Death is the separation of the spirit from the physical body. Your body and mind is the instrument to allow my spirit to communicate. Just as your hand would go in a glove and you move it around, if you take your hand out, the glove just falls. You would never attribute the movement to the glove. The body returns to the ground from which it was taken, Genesis 2, 7 and 3, 19. From thus you were taken, from thus you return. The spirit is the real you, the real me, not the body. We get so enamored with the body. Our whole society and culture is crazy about the body. There's nothing wrong with exercise, but there's a lot of healthy people that are going to be in hell. Good-looking people. Ripped! Jesus said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Matthew 10, And Now listen carefully. Consider that scripture. If that is not true, then Jesus is a liar. It's, there's not A, B, or C in this. It's A or B. Death is the transition from the temporal to the eternal. Those who die in Christ are instantly present before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 through 8. He says, twice you're never found naked. People say, well, but that was Jesus. He was God. But he empowers us. He enables us. He never asks us to do something that he himself had not done. So you have Stephen who is being stoned to death. And as he's being stoned to death, he calls upon God and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he says this confidently in Acts 7.59. Jesus did it from the cross. Stephen did it there. And so have many a believers throughout church history. Those who die apart from Christ are instantly present in hell and torments. And none of us as Christians should ever say that with any content or joy, but with a broken heart. Those who die without Christ will taste the second death in the lake of fire after the white throne judgment, Revelation twenty fourteen and 15 says. Now, this is not a second opportunity to be saved. When a person dies without Christ, they are instantly present in hell. Luke 16 tells us that very, very clear by the words of Jesus in verse 23. Lazarus, the beggar and the rich man. One in comfort, paradise, the other one in torment. And when a person is judged at the white throne judgment, then they are judged for all their sins. And for all eternity, they are sentenced by Jesus Christ because there's a level of punishment if God is just if God is holy certainly he will not send each person to the same punishment just like you as a father and a mother would not punish your children straight across the board if they did horrific sins in different degree for you to be just for you to be loving you must be equitable you must be just in proportion to the crime. Now God is perfect. Do you think He's going to make a mistake? At that day, no one will give Him any information. No one said, "Wait, wait, wait, wait." There's a guy who can stand up for me, or, or I've got something you missed. Mm-mm. Jesus was declaring His complete confidence in the Father's plan to crucify a son for the sins of the world. By his determined purpose and foreknowledge. Acts 2.23 tells us that. So the father crucified his son from before the world began in his plan. He lives in an eternal present. We live in a chronological linear time, past, present, and future. The father did it to make only one way for man to be redeemed. The father did it in full recognition of what it would cost him and his son. We often think of the son, if you're a father and your son gets hit by a car and you're there in the hospital caring for him. You would gladly say, I wish it would have happened to me than my son. Hands down, I'll take my son's place. You can imagine the father seeing the mistreatment of the son. Legions of angels ready to thrust down from heaven and to deliver him. But he didn't because he loves you. It was the only way to atone for you and for me. And the Father did it in such a way that he never violates your free will. You don't have to go to heaven, but you can. But also to return to the Father. Listen to John 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end or the uttermost. He knew that he would be dying very shortly and returning to the Father. John tells us Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, John thirteen three. John again says, my, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, John 14, 2. And if I go, I, I go to prepare a place that... But where I am, there you may be also, and I will come back to receive you to myself. You must make a distinction between coming back for us, to receive us to himself, and coming back with him to set up the kingdom. First Thessalonians, he comes back for us, the rapture. Right here in John 14, 1 through 3, first time Jesus mentions it. Second Thessalonians, we come back with him to set up the kingdom. There's a big distinction but also to predestine those trusting in Jesus. Predestination is an interesting biblical doctrine. Paul says this, According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, Ephesians 1.4. I confirm my predestination by my own choice to believe or disbelieve. Never believe that God has predestined you to not believe and to be damned. That's not a biblical doctrine. That's a doctrine made by a man according to John Calvin. I believe in predestination according to the Bible, but not according to Calvinism. God gives you a free will. And yet he says he has elected and predestined, but they never violate one or the other or contradict, but they complement one another. We can't understand how they work together, but don't worry about it. You say, well, what if God didn't predestine me? Well, why would you believe that? Well, I haven't come. Well, why haven't you come? I don't want to. Well, then, maybe you're not. Well, that's not fair. Well, then, come. Peter says, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And there's the problem. We don't have foreknowledge. For you to understand how predestination and free will work together, you must have foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is, is more than just information beforehand. It's a manifestation of his omniscience. He knows everything. He can't learn nothing. So to understand predestination and free will to its full end, we need foreknowledge. We don't have it. Peter says, elect according to foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Paul put it this way, for whom he foreknew. He also predestined to be conformed, and there's the key. If you believe that you're called, that you're elected, that you're predestined, then there must be transformation conforming you to the image of Christ. If there's no transformation going on and a predestination. Bottom line: simple. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, then he also called. Whom he called, he also justified. Whom he justified, then he also glorified. All are in the perfected tense Because God can see the end from the beginning. We have a problem with that. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Every year we have a parade here. It's called the Rose Parade. When we're standing on this corner and the parade gets to here, we start seeing the beginning of it. But the people on the other end are looking at the end of it. About a half hour before, they saw the beginning. If I go up on a Goodyear blimp, I'll be able to see the beginning, the middle, and the end all at one time. God can see you In your birth, your whole life, and a trillion years into the future, all at one time. Because he lives outside of man's time domain. An eternal present. There's no problem with that. But notice also to demonstrate his love for the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes him should not perish but have everlasting life. Therefore, if Jesus Christ died for the whole world, then there must be at least one opportunity given to every individual born into this world. If God doesn't give every individual at least one opportunity, then he cannot be God, he cannot be just, he cannot be good, and he cannot be holy. He has to be a liar. Now, I cannot tell you how, when, and where, but knowing the nature and the attributes of God, he will give at least one time. And he gave us a picture of that. That you can't miss. Two seats on the cross. Both equally distant. Both equally listening. Both equally being petitioned by Jesus. One accepts. The other one rejects. There you have human history. When Jesus judges every person. Not one of them is going to say. You never gave me a chance. He would be unjust. He would be a liar. Listen to Paul, for when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrated his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, the ungodly. Romans 5, 6, and 8. I presume you qualify for the category of ungodly. Unrighteous is my wrong conduct towards you. Ungodly is my wrong living towards God. The vertical is the most important. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The trusting expression is revealed by the phrase, into your hands, confidence. Notice thirdly, the willing submission. I command my spirit. Jesus was laying his life down of his own free will. No one forced him to do so, not even the Father. And Jesus had the power to raise it up again. He left his throne, became man, and submitted himself to every abuse of man. According to his own will, John ten seventeen through 18 says, Therefore, my father loves me because I lay down my life and that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power both to lay it down and have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my father. Wow. So the father raised Jesus, Jesus raised himself and the Holy Spirit raised him. All three had a part in it. He demonstrated love beyond that of the world. John tells us greater love has no man than he laid down his life for his friends, John fifteen thirteen. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him, beloved. Now are we the children of God and has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he, Jesus, is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. 1 John 3, 1 through 4. The greatest incentive for a holy living is that you know that Jesus can come at any time for you. If you're not living holy... You do not believe Jesus is coming. You cannot just go to church. You have to be the church. You can't play church games. Those are bad games. No longer was he in the land of sinners. Or the hands of the sinners. But the Father's. God is spirit, God is light, and in him there's no darkness at all. God is love and God is life. Every one of those describe as nature what he is. No longer would man have to fear death. Jesus tasted death for every man. He died in their stead, Hebrews 2, nine. Now, if he tasted death for every man, that itself says that every man and woman has an opportunity to be saved. So you can't buy the chosen frozen theology. It's a contradiction. Hebrews 2, nine says that we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels. For the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one. Not the few, but every one. Jesus destroyed Satan through death, the one who had the power of death, in Hebrews 2.14. Inasmuch then as the children have partakers of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. Satan has no power over the child of God. Jesus knocked out all his teeth at the cross. All he can do is gum you to death. Jesus freed every man and woman in Hebrews 2.15 and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Jesus was victorious over the satanic host in Hades, Colossians 2.15 says. He disarmed principalities and powers, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them. Matthew tells us that the graves were open and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, were raised. And coming out of the graves, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city, appearing to many, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two and 53. Can you imagine? You're one of those Jews walking through Jerusalem and you see your Aunt Jenny walking around? Who's been a stiff for about three years in the grave? As the first fruits to demonstrate what he was going to do to those who believed in him. Wow. John tells us in the Book of Revelation that death and Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, Revelation twenty fourteen. So hell right now is really just a holding tank. It's dead time until you are judged for your sins, and then you're ascribed the level of punishment in the lake of fire for all eternity. That's why Jesus came. So you don't go there. You think he did it because he hates you? Or because he loves you? Jesus was dismissing his own spirit at will. From the temporal 33 years he had spent on the earth. This should not be confused with suicide. The taking of one's own life. No man or woman has the authority or right over their own life to commit suicide. Life has been given by God and God takes it away. Yet some people take their own life because of despair and no hope. This is a pagan practice by unbelievers. Christians don't commit suicide. We saw our lives so messed up, that's why we gave our life to Christ. Now we have hope in Christ. And he is sufficient for all of life. History verifies this as they're burnt at the stake and tortured, not denying Jesus Christ. The act of Jesus dismissing his spirit by laying down his life is not called suicide, but a loving sacrifice as one who lays down his life for his friend or for someone in place of them. There's only five people in the scriptures recorded committed suicide. You have Saul, fell on his own sword, his armor-bearer. You have Zimri, the pagan king, who burnt his house and brought it down on fire on himself. And then you have Ahithophel and Judas Iscariot. Do you as a believer want to be associated with those five? There is not one verse that would condone suicide for a person to enter heaven. The Bible says... You shall not murder. When you kill yourself, you're a murderer. You can't say, well, I'll repent right away. That does not speak against going to war. You're defending your family, your country. God sent his people out to war. That does not mean when a soldier calls in artillery on himself to kill the enemy. He's a hero. That's not suicide. He lays down his life for others. Let's be clear on that. Jesus as our eternal intercessor, the God-man, sits at the right hand of God now. His name is Jesus, Yahweh of salvation, Christ, Messiah, Lord, Master, Controller of our life. His position is as an advocate, a lawyer for our defense, First John 2, 1. But he's a little different kind of lawyer than the lawyers down here on earth. There are lawyers who will take your case even though you're guilty and present you innocent. Jesus only accepts guilty pleas. If you don't acknowledge your guilt, he doesn't even take or hear your case. He says, if you acknowledge your guilt, I can get you off. If you don't, you're on your own. He's a real honest lawyer. Jesus was declaring his delight to be reunited with the Father at this point. Knowing he had finished the work of the Father that had been given to him in John 17, 4 and John nineteen thirty. it is finished. Knowing he would be restored to a glory before the world was as he prayed in John 17, 5. Knowing the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God to be reunited with the Father, Hebrews 12, 2. The joy was that he knew he was going to be reunited. He sat down. Not that he saw that you and I would be saved. That's a truth somewhere else, but not in that context. The joy was, now he would be reunited in heaven with the Father. He is the author and finisher of our faith. He was proven to be worthy to sit at the right hand of the Father, knowing that he was the only way to God for all sinners by grace. He Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, you are saved by grace through faith and not of yourself. It's the gift of God. He is the only way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by him, in John fourteen six. In that statement, Jesus destroyed every religion, every opinion, every philosophy. Anybody who tells you there's another way, they're a liar and a deceiver. Get away from them. There's only one name given under heaven and earth whereby you must be saved, Acts There's only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, 1 Timothy 2 5. To me, the gospel is simple one way, one name, one mediator. God is not open to diversity. God is very, very narrow minded because he knows what's at stake. Are you ready? Your eternity. He is our faithful high priest who intercedes for us day and night. Hebrews 2.18, 14-16, through, through 2 and many, many other passages. But also knowing he has said the last saying, then he breathed his last. The phrase is not the usual for death. The phrase sleep is used of the believer passing. It's never used of a non-believer. The unbeliever dies, which is eternal separation from God. Death is the separation of the spirit and soul from the body. For this reason, Paul puts it this way. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 2 Timothy 1 8 through 10. It is through the preaching of the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. This is what the pulpits of America need, not the watered down Kool Aid that people are drinking. The gospel cuts deep to your heart. It's a mirror that lets you see your ugliness and asks if you will agree with God about your life so that he can fix it. The willing submission is revealed by the expression, I commend my spirit. As John Huss, the Czechoslovakian religious reformer, was being burnt, at the state in the early 1400s up, for opposing the Roman Catholic Church, all his enemies were triumphantly given over um, his soul to the devil, declaring, quote, But I commit my spirit into thy hand, O Lord Jesus, who has redeemed it. What a contrast. In the midst of his enemies cursing him, handing him to the devil, he, like our Lord, he, like Stephen, committed his spirit to the Lord Jesus. Confidently. Wow. The last saying, Jesus was going home. The seventh saying of Jesus from the cross regarded his death. Characterized by the loving relation, Father, the trusting expression into your hands, the willing submission, I commend my spirit. What an amazing Savior we have. If you don't know Jesus Christ tonight, we plead with you to repent from your sins and embrace Christ Jesus. That you might be transferred from darkness to light. And that he might give to eternal life. Father, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Lord, we pray that you deal with our hearts. And Lord, we just thank you for just your goodness towards us. And we pray, Lord, for those that are here over the internet that perhaps do not know you, Lord. That you would reveal yourself to them, your love, your grace, your desire to forgive them. And to come into their life. As you're praying. If you don't know Jesus Christ. As your Lord and Savior. This is your decision. No one else. I'm not going to ask you to stand up. To an altar call. Right where you sit. If you believe that you're a sinner. It's by the grace of God. If you desire to repent from your sins. That's the grace of God. If you want to cry out to God. That's the grace of God. And you'll be transformed right where you sit by grace through faith. It's a prayer of repentance. This is your prayer to God, not to us. Maybe you're over the internet. You can repeat it right where you sit and God will change your life and forgive you right where you're at. This is your prayer. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Fill me with your spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. Amen.